All right. Well, how are you all? How are you all doing? Um, have you had any critical intersections yet? Do you feel critically intersected? Barn, I thought um, Jackie was going to say, and thank you for that more than gracious introduction. I thought Jackie was going to say, in the home stretch, we're going to be joined by a home girl because this is, this is my alma mater, Barnard. I went to school right here, and if you want to blame anybody for what I've done since, you can probably blame Tema Kaplan um, of the Center for Women's Research um, that Janet is now personing, not manning, but personing so uh, brilliantly. Um, truly, Barnard launched me in a lot of critical intersections. Um, an extraordinary experience I had here that did commit me to creating places where we could talk about how does change actually happen. And as everybody in this room knows, and certainly the people at the New York Women's Foundation knows, it happens from the bottom up. And yet our media always tell the story from the, bottom, from the top down. So Grit TV is an effort and exercise to try to correct that. I have a grand plan to take over the media, at least have one or two channels where women could be, I don't know, like it could we at least be half of the population that you see? Could we have some people of color, maybe with a talk show, maybe? Or is Elliot Spitzer really the only person we can give any job to? Um, I don't know. Um, today models exactly the sort of uh, discussion that I believe in and I'm excited by. And the reason I brought some copies of Blue Grit along is because there's a chapter in there about, um, well, among other things, reproductive justice that quotes half, I think everybody on this panel I interviewed for that book. Half of you all work for organizations that are quoted there um, because I believe you model something about the possibility for change in this country uh, that is simply not reflected in our national discourse that constantly tells us that anything reproductive, let alone female, um, is too hot to handle in politics and no politician should take a position on any of that because it'll be a disaster for them. It's not true. And you know it's not true. And this part of the session today, this part of the day, is about how do we take that next step? If you've talked about how did you begin peer organizing, peer-to-peer -peer organizing, and sort of um, coalition building and sector organizing. I, d I don't, would love to know what a sector really looks like, but um, this is really about how do we change the world? How do we go from the personal to the local to the power and the change that we all believe in and we believe is possible? And we've got three people here who represent organizations and that have been involved in struggles where real change has been accomplished through the kind of organizing and harnessing of grassroots support and grassroots smarts um, that this conference is all about. So I'm, what we're going to do is hear from our three panelists and then have a bit of a conversation amongst us and then have a bit of a conversation amongst all of us. I've had all of our panelists on the show in the last few months, I think, even. But ever since we started, they've been stalwart geniuses, experts with expertise who come on and uh, always stir things up. Um, Silvia Enriquez is the president and CEO of the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health. Lynn Paltrow, Executive Director of the National Advocates for Pregnant Women. Miriam Young is Executive Director of National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. And their titles are filled out in the brochure, and they'll explain more about who they are and what they do as they speak. Sylvia, let's start with you. Thank you so much for inviting National Latina Institute to be here today. 
Um, I understand you've had really great discussions and examples of amazing work that's happening here in New York City. Um, and so, you know, we work based here in New York City. Our headquarters is here. We have a Washington, D.C. office. So a lot of the work we do is on a national level. Um, which, you know, it can be challenging at times as well, and um, we don't often have the, the privilege to claim lots of, um, lots of wins um, and policy change. But I do think that um, we are continuing to make some strides, particularly with the work that's happening on the ground specifically. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how we see an intersection, how we take an intersectional approach to reproductive health. Latina Institute is a reproductive health organization. That's our primary lens. We focus on ensuring um, that all Latinas, their families, and their communities have the human right to access the full range of reproductive health care services. And that includes everything from access to prenatal care, the right to parent, um, the right to parent with dignity, as well as abortion access, as well as birth control, family planning services, prenatal, et cetera. Um, we do this through policy advocacy, organizing strategies and organizing um, and leadership development around the country through communications, and most recently through research. Um, so for us, you know, we, we really embrace a social justice, a human rights perspective to reproductive health care because we recognize that for the women that we work with, primarily immigrant women who are Latinas um, of all ages and generations, um, and many women, many Latinas who are not immigrants as well, um, the, the idea of, of being able to achieve self-determination and, and autonomy and to make decisions about her own life um, is just, it's way beyond whether or not she has access to reproductive health care services. It's much deeper than that. It's about the political climate that's happening in her state around immigration and whether or not, um, you know, there's, there's hostile anti-immigrant legislation and policies in her community, um, whether or not there's access to, to educational opportunities for her children, um, to economic justice and jobs and opportunities, um, to, you know, just a lot of different issues that impact her family members. And so it's, while it's about, you know, while we center our work on women, we really know and understand that the role of women in communities as pillars of their households and their, and their families, that if, you know, they have to be healthy to be able to provide for their families, but they also really need to make sure that their families' needs are met. And so we really have to take a holistic approach to reproductive health care. So what I'm going to talk about today specifically is um, an ex a most recent public policy example about, um, you know, how uh, the life of, you know, of a, of a woman trying to, um, you know, build a better life for herself and her family and, and, and the, all the different challenges in terms of um, sort of what's happening politically with health care reform in terms of economic challenges and how these things come together. Um, and sometimes very simply when trying to access birth control in this example. So, you know, National Latina Institute has been working, worked on health reform for the past couple of years now. And we were very specifically advocating um, so that all Latinas and their families and their communities could have a chance of, of accessing better health care services in this country. And most of our, our policy demands and, and recommendations focused on immigrant women, low-income women, um, and reproductive health care services. So while we know 
the number of women, you know, the number of families who will have increased access to health care because of health reform and the changes, the positive changes that were made. We also recognize that um, many of the women who are immigrants and their families can't access um, the health exchange and, and may be limited in what they can access with health reform. And that we, ha we did experience some losses in reproductive health care, primarily with abortion, and also we're seeing now challenges with access to birth control. So, you know, one of the things that we, we specifically started to figure out, well, what is it, you know, what are the issues that are specifically um, impacting women that we work with in different states? And, you know, it's a state by state. We have, you know, there's four, four or five states that we consider the most active at Latina Institute who have um, groups of women who become affiliated to Latina Institute. And, but, you know, in terms of issues and challenges, day-to-day -day services that women were seeking, um, birth control was actually, and family planning services were actually one of the biggest challenges that women faced. And through health reform, it's not yet quite clear whether or not um, women will be able to access free or low-cost birth control. And I can talk about the policy in a minute, but let me share a story that one of our activists um, shared with us, actually, and she, as she was, she's in Florida, and she's a working mom with two small children. She welcomed her, um, well, she had, yeah, she has two small children. She welcomed her baby earlier this year in a planned pregnancy. She was shocked to learn that despite having health insurance through her employer, she couldn't afford to resume her birth control. The IUD had been her reliable form of birth control for years, but she was told she must pay $800 in fees beyond what her health insurance covers. Switching to the birth control pill was also not affordable. The pill will cost her up to $480 per year in insurance co-payments. Both options are out of reach as she takes on the cost of a newborn. She is reluctantly weighing one final option to access a reliable form of birth control. Reveal private information on this deeply personal subject to a coworker who is charged with submitting appeals to the insurance company. As it stands, health reform does nothing to minimize or eliminate these costly co-payments for birth control for working women. Women spend an average 30 years over their lifetime trying not to get pregnant. For women, like Jersey, that could mean more than $15,000 in co-pays and related fees. And so this person has health insurance, um, but yet struggling to make, you know, payments on a monthly basis. Um, and currently, the way that health reform, the bill, um, as it stands, would not necessarily alleviate this burden. So another example um, is from a group of women, and one woman specifically, um, from Texas. And they, we did some focus groups um, and some advocacy efforts with some of our leaders in the, in, um, the South Valley of Texas. So, so many of them are immigrant women recently arrived here from, from Mexico. Um, so for them, the challenge with health reform and, and the challenges they face is trying to access reproductive health services. Many of our activists told us how they feel devalued by the fact that they only qualify for health services when they are pregnant, but are largely ignored otherwise. As one woman put it when asked what she would need to maintain her health, she would need to, quote, to be able to get health care without being pregnant. <laughs> Women are making monthly payments once they learn they are pregnant so that they can afford a sterilization after they give birth. And this was just one of many different examples of women who, 
would say to us, you know, it, you know, here we are working. I mean, many two the, the women that spoke about these specific issues were also key activists and advocates during health reform. So they themselves went out to their district offices, to members of Congress, signed letters, called. I mean, they because of them, we were able to Latina Institute was able to produce over a thousand letters. Um, demanding reproductive health care services be included in health reform throughout the past year. And, you know, it's, it's hard to then go back and say, so we didn't quite get it. And they said, well, right, and this is what's going to happen. This is what's happening now to me. Um, and, so, and so, you know, as a result, we've been able to continue mobilizing efforts specifically on um, the Women's Health Amendment, which is specifically where we want to include affordable or, or free birth control. Um, and for now, you know, in terms of where healthcare reform is, is, you know, the, the Women's Health Amendment, and, you know, many of you probably know this, just to give a quick recap, is a component of health reform that, you know, is a component of the bill that was passed last spring in March specifically. And it ensures that receiving insurance coverage for the prevention of, being, of illness and disease, women can no longer be denied basic preventative services that could help stop an illness before it starts. So before that, I mean, this is a good thing, because before that, women could be denied coverage for having had a C-section or for being above a certain age or for, you know, simply being a, women, a woman sometimes. And the Women's Health Amendment ensures that those denials are no longer allowed. Um, women will not be forced to use these preventative services such as mammograms, but they will be there for a woman if she and her doctor decide that she needs them. However, Department of Health and Human Services is currently deciding the rules about what preventative care means and, screen and what screenings would actually look like under the new health care law. And this is important because insurance companies will be required to offer preventative health care services free of charge. So currently, birth control is not described as a preventative health care service. So that's the policy challenge that we have. Um, and so I think, you know, it, it poses a lot of this, this issue in this campaign is specifically, you know, challenging for, for Latina Institute because it poses a lots of different questions. So one is, you know, we advocated strongly for health reform. A lot of the work that we did in D.C. is because of the hard work of our activists and our leaders on the ground and all the letters and all the calls they made to their, to their members of Congress. So we could not have, you know, done any policy work if it hadn't been for their work. Um, the other piece is, you know, for, for many, many years, when we look at birth control and family planning among Latinas, we've always talked about um, the challenge and, and kind of the, 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 um, the issues that women faced when accessing birth control for, for generations. So coercive and forced sterilization practices of Puerto Rican women and Mexican-American women in this country um, from the you know, 40s, 50s, et cetera. The hard work that, that Latina advocates have done to ensure that coercive sterilization practices don't occur as often. Um, and, and how you know, many time long-term acting contraceptions, contraceptive services are not, you know, are not the, the, the choices that women wanna make for themselves. So then this is sort of part of our, our theory and part of the work that we've, that we've or the history, part of the work that women have done before before us, and it's part of how we look at reproductive justice issues and also, um, you know, access to birth control. And so now, you know, with the way that um, health reform is, is being implemented and, and the challenges that we have with women telling us, okay, 
yes, some of that, you know, that is true about the challenges of long-term acting contraceptive with the non-reversible methods of contracep contraception like sterilization. Um, but bottom line is I, sometimes I don't have access to anything else and that's exactly what I need and that's what I can't get right now. And so when women are saying that they're going to put monthly payments um, towards a, a sterilization practice at the end of nine months just so that they can afford it, it, you know, it really kind of brings all of these different intersectional issues to us front and center and we have to figure out a way to talk about you know, what do we, what's, what's, what do we aspire for reproductive justice? Like, what are we, what are we going to be fighting for? Um, and what's our vision for that? So <laughs> I don't really have an answer off the top of my head, but it's something that we continue to struggle with. But I bring it to you all because I think it's challenges that we continue, that we're going to continue to face as we, as we're, you know, struggling to make policy change, um, meeting the needs of our communities and hearing what women actually need and want today. Um, so, you know, we're committed to changing policy and we're committed to changing the public discourse around how low-income women and immigrant women are looked at in terms of their ability to, to control their fertility, their wanting to control their fertility, planning for their future. And for us, it's important that we start hearing new perspectives in the public debates and recognize that what women in our communities need and want are very basic, basic bread and butter issues many times. Um, and to recognize that, you know, not only are the women need these issues, but they're also the agents of social change in their communities. And to change the image that we have of low-income Latinas and immigrant Latinas as simply coming to this country and, you know, taking services or not contributing when, in fact, it's quite the opposite. Um, and so part of the, the, this story, while not fully complete in terms of how it's going to resolve itself, we hope that at least lifting up stories of women who have made a change in their community and continue to fight and yet are still desperately seeking basic issues will help change the discourse and the dialogue that we have around these very complicated issues. So, thank you. I am the Executive Director of Legal Advocates for Pregnant Women, and at the last minute I was going to show you some slides, but I have a feeling it's not going to work. So, I will just talk and say we are a fundamentally, at its core, the whole idea of it is about reproductive justice. Uh, we think of ourselves sometimes as the legal arm of the reproductive justice movement, and I would like to fulfill that uh, claim more and more as we grow. But I often have to give what I are trying to develop what I think of as an elevator speech, especially when I say I'm national advocates for pregnant women in the liberal Northeast, and I get this look. And so what I've come up with for now is we are a pro-choice organization that recognizes that women who have abortions are, most of them are mothers or will become mothers. So that if we want to build a movement, we have to include them. That means that as much as NARAL or any group defending the right to choose abortion is, a is in the reproductive justice framework, so is Sisters on the Rise and Brooklyn Young Mothers Collective. And that it is only by working together, both at the community and state and national level, and by including all women who are pregnant, who are mothers, who are in the lives of those mothers, who are pregnant, whose partners are pregnant, who've never been pregnant but live in this world, that we can build and sustain a movement. It's about recognizing that even in New York City, and this is... Um, uh, Jack Ebanks asked me to mention this, that we think of ourselves as relatively resource-rich. We can get abortions here, except actually some women can't. 
Uh, many women experience stillbirths and miscarriages without the support they need. And in New York City, it's my understanding that there is only one freestanding birthing clinic in the entire city. So even in what we think of as resource-rich, maybe reproductive uh, or choice, at least, heaven, is not even so here in New York City. We as an organization recognize what I think each and every person in this room recognizes, which is that the abortion issue and other hot-button issues like gay marriage are used all the time to distract and divide, to divide us from realizing the common threats we have across religions, across politics, and the common needs we have, like health care, like a living wage, like economic security and education. We can... what. Reproductive justice means is recognizing that any time those issues come up and are dividing us, we can say how we feel about those issues and then say, but you know what we have in common? We don't have child care for our kids, or we don't have health care, or we go to bed worrying about the accident or the job we're going to lose that could bankrupt our family. We're an organization that recognizes that there's a lot of hope and possibility. Um, like many of you, um, we see people as a lot more complex than they're painted. There's a vast middle of this United States, and a lot of those people define themselves as pro-life. But what I've come to understand is that the core meaning of that, unfortunately, is pro-fetal life. And there are an awful lot of potential allies who are actually pro-lives. In other words, they have uh, religious, moral, ethical feelings that value fetal life. And they're uncomfortable about abortion, but they also care about mom. They also care about whether she's able to feed her family, take care of her kids, uh, deal with being unemployed, deal with violence in her lives. And so they are potential allies in many of our issues. As a reproductive justice organization, we are all about intersections. We are about recognizing that you cannot advance one issue without the other and that working on more than one, obviously each of us have to, has to prioritize, but that seeing the intersections, being capable of talking about them, doesn't dilute our strength. It empowers us. I want to give just an example today. Damayan, if I hope I've said that right, talked about a survey they did of um, immigrant domestic workers. And the survey found that more, something that more than 60% came here for economic reasons. Well, it's very interesting in the abortion debate that opponents of abortion love to say, well, most women are just having abortion for economic reasons. Like, that's a bad thing. That economics, that the desire to be able to feed your family, whether they are here or in another country, makes you of less value or political importance. And that protecting fundamental rights in those ways don't matter if we can just label it economics. And yet we share that understanding that economics is about the core issue of reproductive justice. Being able to have choice, which doesn't exist unless you have the economic means and support to exercise choice or rights. What does NAPW do? We work intersectionally. We do legal advocacy, we do organizing, we do public education. And to the extent we have the resources to do legal advocacy, I explain that we do the cases where anti-abortion arguments are used to hurt women who want to go to term. What does that mean? Well, if people in this country are successful in having fetuses treated as separate from the pregnant women who nurture and do the work of carrying them as if they are separate and uh, separate legal entities, something very dangerous happens. Most of the time that gets talked about is just, oh, we're going to lose the right to abortion. 
But a fetal separatism, the idea that you can legally segregate the fetus from the pregnant woman succeeds, they claim it's just adding a new category of people to the Constitution. So we did that with slaves. We did that with women. Except when we added African-American slaves to the Constitution, certainly took away power and privilege from the white and other slaveholders, but it didn't take away their constitutional personhood. They still had the right to vote. They still were persons under the law. When we added women to the Constitution, men lost an awful lot of privilege, but they did not lose their right to vote, their right to due process, their right to life and liberty. Yet when and if uh, fetal separatism succeeds, what we will be doing is subtracting women from the Constitution, from their status as moral and legal persons. I wanted to show you some slides but uh, of some of the women we represent, but I'll briefly tell you the range of cases we work on and what I mean by anti-abortion arguments used to hurt women going to term. A pregnant woman uh, researches carefully and decides that she'd be better off without an unnecessary cesarean section surgery to give birth or that she'd be better off at home giving birth. And they send the sheriff to her house saying, fetus has a right to life. We can take you into custody, deprive you of your liberty, force you to have cesarean surgery, possibly kill you as they did in one case, deprive you of your right to, to life, deprive you of your right to counsel. That's an example. Cases where women who love their children but can't overcome an addiction problem in the short term of a pregnancy give birth and are told they're child abusers. Women who, for a variety of reasons, suffer a stillbirth are told they're murderers. Women who um, are HIV positive are kept in jail because a judge thinks that the fetus has a right to be protected by the fabulous health care we provide in our, our jails in America. <laughs> Um, women who are depressed and who have attempted suicide out of that depression and survived but then lost the pregnancy and are charged with murder. Uh, the woman in Iowa who at five months pregnant, why is she in Iowa? Let's see. Her husband is abusing her. She can't get work where she lives. She takes her children to Iowa to have a letter, better life. Okay, so domestic violence, economic justice, the right to travel, and she falls down the flight of steep and unsafe stairs, stairs in her public housing. She calls for help. She's reported to the police and arrested for attempted fetal homicide because maybe she fell down the stairs on purpose. So what are the intersections here today? This morning, and I hope I'm saying her name right, uh, Zainab Iegu talked about working with women in her community around eating clay. That clay is a custom, something they eat, that there are, I, I'm not sure whether it's lead, but there's something dangerous in it. Now, if fetuses are persons, and we can uh, treat pregnant women, whether they're having an abortion or trying to go to term, as if they are criminals, for, or as if they are non-persons under the law, then the work her group does, the way things should be, talking to people, educating people, taking people and saying, you know, I know this is your custom. I know you believe this is right, but here's how you can do it differently. We lose that and instead get pretty much everything in our lives controlled by the criminal justice system. I don't usually do this, but I'm, I want to end by sharing something I heard on Yom Kippur. Uh, it's a Jewish holiday, and my rabbi uh, looked out at a room of 4,000 people. Our synagogue has an open-door policy. You don't have to be a member. You don't have to pay to come to this very religious holiday. And lots of Jews who don't otherwise observe come that one day. And she said when the 10, it's a, it's a, a GLBQT, if I got it all, uh, synagogue. Uh, she said, you know, 10 men, 10 gay men started this. They wanted to be able to be gay and to be Jewish. 
And when they started it, if they thought what they were doing was creating a space where 4,000 people could come and celebrate straight and gay, otherwise they would have gone home. And I know all of you are just like that. That I don't know if you even thought you'd be in this room today, but everything you do is setting in motion things that can make change 10, 20, 100, 200 years from now. And it's just thrilling to be here as part of those efforts. Thank you. I'm Miriam Young, and I'm the executive director of the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum. Uh, first, a quick shout out to my Asian Pacific Islander sisters out there in the room. If I haven't talked to you yet, I will by the end of the day. Uh, Thank you for that. I like giving shout-outs. It helps me uh, not feel so nervous. Um, I I am so um, humbled and really feel blessed to be here and really like, what am I doing up here talking when all I want to do is keep sitting down and listening? Um, I've been spending a lot of time in D.C. actually. Sylvia and I were just there yesterday. I smell like Amtrak, so don't come near. Um, But, um, you know, and Laura and I were just talking about how devastatingly kind of depressing things are, right? Like the DREAM Act failed, Don't Ask, Don't Tell failed. Um, uh, Did the abortion defense bill fail probably? Like, and, you know, as, as as a queer immigrant person myself, to think that the kind of two biggest federal legislative things I was hoping for even slightly were related to a defense bill was kind of ridiculous to me, but still I was cheering for it. Um, And as someone who's on the board of Queers for Economic Justice and thinking, don't ask, don't tell, I'm cheering for don't ask, don't tell. Um, But still I was cheering for it and to think that that still didn't get it passed. I I, I felt awfully depressed actually coming up uh, back to New York City. And then I got into this room and I was reminded um, that systemic change really does happen in rooms like this with the work that you all are doing on the ground. And it made me miss um, the youth work that I did at the LGBT Community Center for seven years and how uh, direct service work and policy work and advocacy work um, on the local level is what's so important. And um, so thank you. I just want to start with that. Um, a little bit about NAPOF is the instruction I had to say and then give a little case study was what I, uh, what I was told. So uh, the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum is the only uh, national multi-issue progressive social justice human rights organization for Asian Pacific Islander women and girls. Uh, we were founded uh, almost 15 years ago. Next year is our 15th anniversary um, by about 100 Asian American activists who were all the way in Beijing for the UN Conference on Women. And when they got there, uh, they realized that though they were in an Asian country as Asian American women, they didn't actually have their own organized voice to participate in their actual, in this actual conference. So they vowed to come back a year following and start this organization. Now those hundred women who helped start NAPOF were all luminaries in their respective fields. Like we had huge civil rights leaders, uh, education rights, violence against women, immigrant rights, um, LGBT rights, all those uh, smart, brilliant activists that UN conferences tend to attract, right? So the, the, the interesting thing about the way NAPOF started was that it started always with a multi-issue intersectional approach, right? Like it was these women not saying, okay, we're just going to prioritize abortion rights and we're not, not just going to prioritize inter- immigration. But really for us to build a, a movement that represents our communities the best, we have to be able to look at all of these things holistically and together. Um, and at the very bottom of it, I think what NAPOF is about 
is elevating the stories of real API women and girls and to break down the invisibility of that because I think that the invisibility is, is, the, is the biggest kind of barrier that we all face. And so um, one way um, I honor the stories of the many sisters in Napoff that I hear is it, it often reminds me of my own stories. And so um, recent news around immigration and the failed comprehensive immigration reform and all the kind of rhetoric about who immigrants are has just made me uh, reflect um, to my parents who uh, brought me into this country when I was two years old. And I also have a two-year-old. So I started to ask my parents, like, why did you come? Like, and what, what made you bring me? Because I couldn't imagine moving with a two-year-old anywhere, uh, not even down the block, never mind, like a whole other country with, you know, no job and no place to live and barely any people. And they said, my dad said, um, they were going to tear down our apartment building anyway. And I was so struck by that because... For for them, they had so little, right, tying them to their lives in Hong Kong that, you know, they were going to tear down our apartment anyway. So the, the, the hope and the economic opportunities that they thought that America would have was enough to drive them and that there wasn't enough holding them um, back at home. I should also mention my dad is uh, the youngest son in his family, and so he never got to go to school. Uh, my mom was the only girl in a family of four, and um, she, she, I always made fun of her, but now I'm proud of her, that she was a D student in high school, and she, you know, even though she was forcing me to study all the time, I was like, Mom, what do you care? You were a D student. And she was like, yeah, that's because I had to then go home and you know, do the wash and you know, work in the family business and feed my brothers and sisters. Anyway, so I think they came because they understood that there was more opportunity for them and certainly more opportunity for, for me. I don't think they would identify as feminist, but I think there was something feminist about that um, hope that they have for themselves. Um, and so my story, like the many stories of the sisters in Napoff, um, and like the many stories of API people here are, are connected. Uh, 60% of Asian Pacific Islanders are foreign-born, right? And we are the largest growing immigrant group in this country. Um, and we're incredibly diverse. There are over 40 ethnic groups that speak over 200 different languages in this country. And um, the majority of us, when we immigrate here, come um, and enter into low-wage industries. One in particular that I want to talk about, um, also, let me note that, you know, over 50% of immigrants are also women, right? And women tend to come in their reproductive years, right? That they, they come in their 20s and 30s, their prime reproductive years. So one project that we're doing um, that most squarely centers us at the intersection with RJ and EJ, although... RJ and EJ is in everything we do. Uh, but one clearest example is the work we've been doing around advocating for the um, rights of nail salon workers. Nail salon industry is one of those low-wage industries that is kind of a, often a first step for immigrant workers. In fact, my mom, who was a D student in high school, started to go back to school when she turned 40, and the first thing she went to was cosmetology school. And she actually got her bar, you know, cosmetology license um, because I think that's what she thought that was what she could do, 
right? Like that that was what was the available industry to her. Anyway, so um, nail salon workers are majority women of color. In some places, they're almost all Asian Pacific Islander women. Many of them are of reproductive age. They work um, extremely long hours, you know, 12 hours at a time. Um, and many of them are hired under contract purpose, uh, contract basis, so that they don't have the full workers' rights, um, not as at-will employees or not paid in, in you know, traditional work models. Um, the thing that we've been doing at the Nail Salon Alliance um, is really focusing on what the exposure to the toxins in the materials that they use will do to their reproductive function. In particular, we know that nail polishes, nail solvents, and all of those um, contain what we call the toxic trio. Don't make me say them. No, I will say them. Uh, formaldehyde, dibutyl phthalate, and toluene are considered the toxic trio. And long-term exposure to these things, they're known carcinogens, they're known neurotoxins, um, and they're known, um, they, they can cause birth defects and, uh, you know, other kind of uh, physical um, uh, ailments in, in women. And so we've been looking at what uh, it means to be working around these fumes for, for 12 hours at a time. And allegorically, we know that uh, nail salon workers are experiencing things like rashes and headaches and asthma and birth defects. And we think it's actually the responsibility of the industry and the government to make sure that these workers are protected. That, in fact, the same manufacturers are selling products in Europe without the toxic trio, but they've chosen not to do so here because it's cheaper to make it with the toxic trio. Right? Or that um, the, um, our government regulators don't all, haven't really paid attention to this sector of the workforce, and so they haven't gotten their act together to figure out what are the things we need. And the way we've been doing this work is um, by working with nail salon alliances across the country. The most active are uh, our sisters in California who have formed a California collaborative for nail salon workers. They empower nail salon workers in their community to come out and speak um, and do advocacy. And they've had huge successes in the last couple of years, including passing a labeling law. So now that uh, manufacturers who sell in California are supposed to label whether or not their product has those materials. And upcoming this year, San Francisco, there's a city ordinance uh, to outright ban products with the toxic trio, and uh, there's some legs around that. Uh, just a few weeks ago, actually, the New York Assembly just passed a law that would require nail salon owners to provide gloves and masks to their workers. That's pending Governor Patterson's um, signature, so I encourage you to get involved in AB 7808 if you're interested. Um, but more importantly, all of us as informed consumers, and some of us who do go like our mani petties every now and then and go to salons, I think to educate ourselves and our sisters about um, the impacts of what that is on, on, on the workers. And if you go to our Healthy Nail Salon Alliance, there's also a cute little handout that we have that shows you some of the best products that are toxic-free and some that aren't, and I think spreading that information so that we can start a real grassroots movement to raise up the issues of um, the, the low-wage workers that are nail salon workers. So thank you. Thank you all. You know, this is why these women are so amazing. If our politicians talked about these issues in the way that you do, not to mention our journalists, they wouldn't be issues, right? Um, it's a huge thing that each one of you does, which is to represent constituency groups, membership groups, organizations with a world of needs at the national as well as the local level because that's a lot of work. 
And the victories, as you pointed out, Sylvia, are, are often slim and mixed. In an era where everyone says, pick an achievable goal, pick one thing, um, find your niche. Why think so big? Why put so much work into it? Quickly, Sylvia. <laughs> I knew it would be a one or two word answer. Um, so why pick one thing? No, why decide not to do that? Oh, that you will really engage we, in, for example, this health care reform right. struggle that was hard for everybody that were paid full time just to do that. Um, well, for us, I mean, we, when we think about what reproductive justice po uh, policy is, is really centering the needs of the most marginalized people in our community. And if we can move, if we can change the world to meet the needs of the most marginalized folks, then we change the world for all of us, for everybody. And so, it, so when we really look at the complexity of, of what we need to sustain our day-to-day, -day, it's not a single issue. And so we're hard-pressed to choose one issue because of that. How do you manage it? Miriam. Um, I, uh, the bigger the umbrella, right, the more folks under it. And I think um, there are more of us than them. And I keep trying to remember that. There, there are more of us than them. And I think uh, rather than be really focused and really narrow and only attract a small community of folks, we have to, and, and sometimes that's strategic, and I don't think that that's always wrong, uh, but to always be able to talk about what are the values that underpin that really specific work and how that, that work and those values are shared amongst a, a broad progressive community um, will win because there are more of us than them. Something else that I keep in mind, I think that's true. I think movements, uh, we, historically, there's lots of evidence Then, when the right moment hits, we can win the big battles. Um, if we only think about achievable goals, we'll never move. But this room is, I think, particularly important that many people live in countries with far worse regimes than we have. And yet they, they, have, they survive, they have love, they have lots of things in their lives. And that even under those regimes, they know what we know, which is you might have a terrible policy in New York, but the people who are working in the systems enforcing it, if they act like human beings and we can reach them and at least get them to do the right thing, even if we have not yet changed the larger policy, things will be better. So that in New York, where children are removed from mothers because they test positive for marijuana when they give birth, you know, this isn't even the policy, but everybody acts as if it did. We thought, well, what can we do? When we started meeting with each of the actors, including the Child Welfare Organizing Project, and thought, you know what? None of the people in that movement have had access, in that work, have had access to experts who are going to tell them, you know what, you really don't have to be worried. Moms who smoke marijuana while they're pregnant are often better moms. <laughs> well, maybe the experts don't say that. But what we found out is in, in the family courts in New York, they have never heard from an expert. And that because we don't value mothers enough to think that they, as much as a pharmaceutical company or anybody else, should have what ha is happening to them, de you know, uh, uh, decided by experts. And so suddenly people working in that system are calling experts. So whether we achieve that big goal or not, we can make it better for each of us precisely by the kind of local and community-based work that everyone in this room is doing. Well, let me ask you a question about that. Um, one of the things we talked about um, over the years, uh, Lynn, has been the practice of people on the other side of the um, reproductive, particularly the choice debate, um, of telling stories about a 
abusive experiences or painful experiences of, of abortions. They seem to have had a, quite a lot of success corralling these stories and getting them inserted into testimony and hearings. How are the relationships on the reproductive justice side? How do we make sure that the kind of stories um, that Sylvia is talking about do get brought into the national discourse? I'm not talking about media. I'm talking about literally how can groups that are not choosing to work at the national level help those who are choosing to work at the national level? Um, and your experience making that happen? Well, I mean, there are many, I mean, there are sort of the concrete ways. Um, anytime we have a case, and, and many of the cases I talked to mentioned briefly are cases we won because we worked at both the local and national level. Um, uh, staff here right now, if you could raise your hands. Um, are working on uh, programs in Tennessee and Alabama, uh, um, and then in Mississippi. 16-year-old girl uh, suffers a stillbirth. Um, she had just turned 16. She's charged with murder, and she's about to be tried uh, as an adult because they say the, that it's feticide, and she caused it because she used uh, an illegal drug, which, in fact, doesn't even cause stillbirths. What are we doing? We're identifying local community activists. We're identifying state-based leaders, and we're talking to our national allies, and we're going to bring them all to the table to say that this is wrong. So signing on to amicus briefs, uh, calling us um, when, so that we can connect you to resources to the extent that exist. We do it the other way. When there's a question about something we're not experts on, we can send them to the experts, the people who are really doing this. Um, you did start with the question of storytelling. It's very powerful, but it isn't enough alone. Uh, the uh, abortion laws in this country were repealed in large part because women told their stories. Um, I think that we're at a different point, and I think that we have to find out which stories are going to be the compelling ones. My gut tells me that we can no longer just tell the abortion story. We have to tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. My abortion, my two miscarriages, <laughs> my three births, one by cesarean and two at home with the midwife in the tub, and you better keep treating me like a person because there's no point in pregnancy when I stop being mm. a full person. Well, let me ask Miriam and Sylvia about that. I mean, again, there's something that seems to happen when people go to Washington, and it sadly happened a little bit to our president, where a minute ago they were telling these powerful personal stories with real passion and moral force, and they get to Washington and they start spouting statistics and how this will or won't affect voting averages or this and that, right? Am I crazy? Suddenly we hear gobbledygook where we used to hear morality and what's right. How do you deal with people who say, well, these stories, and you told some beautiful ones, each of you, um, they wouldn't work in congressional debate? How do you get to, how do you resist that D.C. kind of, well, policy speak is different? Sure. I just want to introduce this, but I have, that I've heard over and over again that particularly Democrats tell people not to tell personal stories, that they want a cost-benefit analysis. And I bet they particularly tell women not to tell personal stories. That may stories. be, which may be the best, so whichever, so Is it true? I think they're wrong. <laughs> okay, good. I think the stories continue to work, and we yes. need brave people to step up and tell those stories. I mean, the one upside to the whole DREAM Act disappointment is how many freaking students came out and put their bodies on the line and told their stories and affect a change in their neighbors who are going to be voters. I think... I Does think everybody here know what the DREAM Act could have possibly done or might still do? Why don't you tell us quickly, Miriam? The DREAM Act would allow um, 
uh, um, undocumented young people who are students in this country uh, put on a pathway to citizenship if they complete school or uh, do military service. And so uh, that's the way I frame it. They've been framing, you know, don't punish the kids for a crime their parents can committed, you know, that they were born here uh, or, you know, they were brought here when they were too young, whatever. People come for all sorts of reasons. The, the fact of the matter is we, we ought to um, uh, keep young people who are educated and who want to make their lives in this country and who want to participate and give them uh, the legal pathways to citizenship that would allow them to. We played a great PSA today from a young Indian boy who resisted or actually didn't get deported because of the attention he got um, through telling his story. Yeah. Sylvia. I agree with Miriam. I mean, we find actually quite the opposite in terms of the power of stories because, you know, we're, as I said, we're headquartered here in New York. We have a policy office in D.C. Who are we to march into members of Congress's office if, if we don't bring stories and women with us um, to tell, you know, their own personal experiences? I mean, one of the things that we learned during health reform was many members of Congress um, who are um, Congressional Hispanic Caucus members said to us, you know, you know, the, the women in our communities turned out, you know, close to a thousand, over a thousand letters to, to try and stop um, a very egregious anti-abortion um, provisions in health reform. And they said to us, you know, we wish you would have come sooner. We have never heard your the side from your community. Um, we only hear from the other side. And so, and, you know, and so lots of, you know, lessons for us as an organization. But I think that... Um, that we've been in those offices a million one times, but, you know, it's much more powerful when they heard personal stories. Um, you know, the letters that people wrote, we would, we would do a draft of the letter, but, you know, our, our activists will write in a personal anecdote about it and, our, you know, their own signature and we'll send it over. They did personal visits in the district to support our federal efforts. And so it's not, you know, it, it, I don't, yeah, I mean, they may be saying that, but in reality, legislators want to hear from their constituents and they and and whether or not we achieve big policy change is a different story but i think that it's lifting the voices and changing the dialogue and the perception and the attitudes and um perspectives that that folks have of women in our community and us as women of color is is critical um we've only got a few minutes left and then we'll come to you all so i hope you have questions ready um on that point i'd love you just to sylvia lead off with a little discussion about some of the challenges facing states now as health care insurance reform is is implemented partly to make the point if ever there was an arena to make this critically intersected argument around economics and justice and race and citizenship and health and choices it's in this debate um, but it's going down la largely now right. off the national stage. Right. It, that's true. It is def definitely on a state-by-state. State. Quickly, you know, I think that our biggest challenge is that each state is going to implement health reform um, depending on their own <laughs> how they want to do it, and the health exchanges are being set up state-by-state. State. And so I think that the big lesson that we're learning right now as we study different states and trying to figure out how to, how to make sure that as many people get access is that we really need folks... Um, I mean, thinking about, you know, even New York City, what are some ways that people who are already doing activism can get further involved in the implementation process? There's lots of opportunities um, to make sure that we get the best um, packages for the people that, you know, in our communities. And there's time, you know, implementation is a long process. And so getting ourselves educated and well-informed about what's happening on a state level is going to be key. And so for people here, I think that, you know, everyone's really active and 
and um, incredibly busy with everything else. But you know, health, health reform is not over; it's just beginning. So let's let's make sure we get continue to get involved. I'd like to end by asking each of you to talk about a, a victory. I think that the the chapter in the Blue Grip book that was about this really made the case that whoever it was that dubbed our issues social issues um, had never been discriminated against because it doesn't just happen at parties. Um, and it, you do feel it in your pocketbook as, among, as well as everywhere else. I think that a story from each of you about a victory at this intersection that we're talking about of reproductive justice and economic justice. We've got about, I don't know, take a couple of minutes each. Do you have one? Where when you bought the more complex story, you actually were able to get further? Um, there was a recent victory that we had, um, and this is NAPOV and Latino Institute and a coalition for a national coalition for immigrant women's rights. Um, uh, a year and a half ago, the Department of Homeland Services started to mandate the Gardasil vaccine for female immigrants aged 11 to 26. Um, it was a mandate that only applied to folks who were getting their green cards who were female, 11 to 26. And we led a really successful cross-sector working group that um, strategized the right kind of maneuver and did the right kind of advocacy and spawned the right kind of grassroots response um, and the right kind of media, that all of it came together and we were uh, successful in pressuring the CDC to reverse those um, reverse the mandate on Gardasil and also to apply this new rule so that when uh, the committee that recommends immunizations makes new recommendations, they don't automatically just apply to immigrants, that they have to apply some public health, uh, you know, thinking and rationale behind it. So it was not only an HPV victory, you, you know, they don't also, ha you also now don't have to get the chickenpox vaccine. Um, and in the future, however many other vaccines that come out that are recommended uh, won't automatically apply just to immigrant women's bodies. Sylvia, quickly? Yeah, so quickly, I did think of one. Um, we, Latino Institute also is working to shift how um, policies support um, young young mothers um, who, are, who choose to, to, to parent and be mothers. And so we have a whole paper out on healthy pregnancies and our perspective in terms of young Latinas. And so, you know, we've been trying to chip away at the stigmatization that many young people face, as, you know, people here very much know about and um, work hard on the ground to, to change as well. And so we, we were able to provide some recommendations to a, a federal bill um, to, that's called, you know, pregnancy prevention. But, um, but specifically we were asking to include support services for parents, for young parents, um, and young mothers. And they did. And so, you know, the bill is, you know, not, maybe not moving as quickly, but the fact of the matter is that we were able to finally influence legislators who are writing bills, um, without talking to young people actually <laughs> about how they feel, um, they should prevent pregnancy. So we were able to do some policy influencing there, and hopefully it'll lead to policy change. Fantastic. Well, these are three things that we've played a, a marginal role in, but a thrilling role in, to be, have been part of more than a decade of efforts to drop the rock, reform the Rockefeller drug laws here in New York. to ban shackling of women, pregnant women prisoners in New York, and to help reframe the debate around uh, access to midwives and point out that that's important for, you know, any place that might have a disaster and you might not be able to go to a hospital and give birth so that midwives who were true grassroots activists got a bill changed in New York so that they don't have to be supervised by their competitors' doctors um, and not be able to practice. 
But in, in, in all of these, it's, I think, the biggest, you know what, actually, the biggest success we can all point to is that the concept of reproductive justice is taking hold. Mm-hmm.